1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host Crawford Gribbon and today my guest is John Wesley Tweeddale. John, despite his middle name, is Academic Dean and Professor of Theology at Reformation Bible College in Orlando, Florida. And we're talking to uh, John today about his new book, John Owen and Hebrews, The Foundation of Biblical Interpretation, just published by TNT Clark, the prestigious theological publisher. John, congratulations on your book and welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you, Crawford. It's a joy to be here.
1: Before we begin talking about the book, could you tell us about yourself?
0: Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned, my name is John Wesley Tweedale, uh, I was uh, named after the Methodist uh, minister. Uh, my parents were converted late in life and went to a Methodist church and later came into a Southern Baptist congregation where as a teenager I was licensed to preach as a, as a Baptist. And then today, I actually am a uh, Presbyterian minister, and I work for a Reformed ministry. So I'm something of a North American evangelical mutt. But I serve as an academic dean and teach uh, theology and church history at Reformation Bible College, which is a small uh, undergraduate theological college that was founded by the late R.C. Sproul in 2011. And so RBC, as we like to call it, is uh, associated with Ligonier Ministries here in North America.
1: That's great. And uh, listeners will know, a couple of weeks ago, we did an interview uh, with Jeff uh, McDonald talking about his new book and John Gerstner, in which R.C. Sproul features quite prominently. So great. Um, John, you explain in the preface to the book that this emerged out of your PhD work at the University of Edinburgh.
0: That's right. Uh, I had the great privilege of uh, working with uh, Susan Hardman Moore, uh, who has uh, overseen several PhDs on John Owen. Uh, and it was great for me to work with Susan at Edinburgh. My own background was really in theological studies, and so I had a good grounding in Uh, intellectual history, and and much of the historiography on Owen has really focused on intellectual history. Uh, But working with uh, Susan really helped uh, kind of ground my own thinking in 17th century England. Uh, She really exposed me to kind of more social and political readings of Owen, and it gave me a great opportunity to kind of merge those two readings of Owen And so my own dissertation uh, was really at the crossroads of kind of an intellectual and social uh, history of Owen and his commentary on Hebrews. And so as I finished up at Edinburgh, I had the opportunity to tweak uh, the dissertation a little bit, and I was delighted that uh, TNT Clark picked up the dissertation in its new uh, series uh, on the studies of English theology. And so uh, it's a great joy to see it uh, out in, in the light of day and also have this ball and chain kind of relieved from me as well. But it was a great time working at Edinburgh and, and really uh, just a delight to be with Susan.
1: And the end result, uh, the, the, the final product out of that PhD experience, this book, John Owen in Hebrews, The Foundation of Biblical Interpretation, is a really quite extraordinary achievement. You've mentioned uh, John, the name John Owen, uh, a number of times. Obviously, he's the subject of this book. Who was he? Yeah,
0: well, John Owen is uh, really one of the most remarkable figures in 17th century England. Uh, he, he's a a leading uh, figure of kind of the Puritan and nonconformist movements in, in the 17th century. Uh, he, he's largely considered one of the, the leading kind of high Calvinists in England at that time. Uh, and he has a remarkable and distinguished life. Uh, He was an advisor to Oliver Cromwell. He helped uh, enact kind of educational reform at Oxford University as uh, ultimately a vice chancellor there. Uh, He gave uh, leadership to nonconformity at places like the Savoy Assembly. Uh, Later in his life, he advocated for toleration And perhaps most today remember him for his devotional and theological writings on topics like the Trinity and Christ and the Holy Spirit, as well as Christian living. But in all of these things, whether it's as a statesman or an educator, a pastor, a polemicist, a theologian, as I argue in the book, he really fundamentally in all of these things is a biblical exegete and an interpreter of scripture. And so the book uh, attempts to kind of provide a, a new reading of Owen where I reevaluate him in light uh, of his exegetical contributions.
1: Hmm. Tell me, John, how many words did Owen write?
0: Owen, over the course of his uh, life, wrote uh, about 8 million words. And remarkably, about 2 million of those words are devoted to his. Uh, Commentary on Hebrews. And what was surprising to me as I began looking at Owen's life and as I began reading his interpreters, most people focused on the the six million words of his kind of general theological writings, but very, very few uh, had paid attention to the two billion words of his commentary. And so my project was an attempt to Uh, understand what's going on in this commentary, but then also see how it relates to the rest of his corpus.
1: Hmm. Now, often when we think about early modern intellectual figures and the scholarship that they attract and their work supports, we often think of figures who wrote relatively little. How does scholarship work in in terms of a figure who has written so much? What kind of patterns can you see in the scholarship on John Owen?
0: Yeah, what's interesting is I think if you look at 18th, 19th century and early 20th century, uh, people who were reading Owen uh, were kind of evangelical communities that were committed to his outlook on the spiritual life. And so they had very sympathetic readings and would would often uh, just extol his contributions in kind of superlative terms. Uh, Then in about the middle of the 20th century, uh, you have uh, some historians beginning to uh, provide descriptive accounts of some of his historical and kind of political contributions. And around this time, you also have uh, some people beginning to reevaluate his theology. And that is almost purely in kind of descriptive terms. And what emerges is a picture of Owen as kind of a timeless theologian. And so they they look at him in these kind of topical accounts where they assess different aspects of his theology, like on Christian living or on the Trinity. Uh, Then over the past, say, 20 or 30 years, uh, much of uh, scholarship associated, particularly with people like uh, David Steinmetz or Heiko Obermann or Richard Muller, have attempted to place Owen in the context of the Reformation and post-Reformation. Uh, as it relates to different streams of kind of Western uh, Catholic thought going back to the Church Fathers and the medieval period. And so these uh, writers really are looking at Owen uh, more kind of programmatically as he fits kind of within the stream of Reformed and post-Reformation thought. Uh, but then even more recently, Uh, you've had some scholars uh, really kind of place Owen in his particular 17th century context. Uh, They've built upon some of the intellectual history done by uh, folks associated with Richard Muller, uh, but they've been able to kind of nuance some of the picture uh, that we've had of Owen by by really setting him uh, in the context of his day and age in the the 17th century.
1: Now, John, as you survey the the increasing amount of scholarship that's appearing on John Owen. Why? Why do you think historians and theological interpreters of his work have focused on his dogmatic contribution rather than his exegetical work?
0: Uh, some of it is just the way in which his works have been published and his uh, general writings have had um, a greater impact on certain communities, and they've been separated from his commentary on Hebrews, or his Hebrews commentary has been separated from his general works. And so I think they've just paid attention to it. I also think, as folks have tried to rediscover Owen, uh, they've been laying the groundwork by providing kind of descriptive accounts of his role in history, as well as the basics of his theology, and haven't always had the luxury Of looking at a particular work and and so for me I'm able to build a lot on what's been already done and that kind of helps me reevaluate and put into kind of better perspective some of these earlier works by taking into account something that's been neglected like Hebrews.
1: Now you you described in your overview of Owen's life and achievements a couple of moments ago uh, how his circumstances change at the end of the British Republic with the restoration of the monarchy when he has to retreat from a fairly fairly important public official role as an educator and as a kind of theological statesman into the much more private, secluded, and quite dangerous life of a Restoration Nonconformist minister. That's also the period you show us in this book when he begins to write this massive commentary on one of the most difficult New Testament books, uh, the Epistle to the Hebrews. Is there anything in the commentary uh, that reflects the difficulties of that later period of his life or the kind of political circumstances in which he was writing?
0: Yeah. It's a great question when you begin to ask, why would somebody devote so much time and energy to a commentary on the book of Hebrews? Because in many ways, the commentary is more than simply an exposition of the letter to the hebrews in the new testament and it really becomes a platform for owen to speak into the the life of the church and in particular his own kind of nonconformist community so as he is um, kind of reeling in the aftermath of the restoration uh, he begins in earnest to think about his own literary contributions And so the commentary, like much of his writing, is a product of his own rejection and defeat. Uh, He first explicitly mentions that he's working on the commentary in 1661, uh, which is just after uh, when he left uh, uh, Oxford. And uh, and so he begins really right out of the gate working on this commentary, uh, the first volume of which uh, emerges in 1668 and then subsequently in an additional three other volumes. Uh, So he has a total of four volumes on the commentary of Hebrews, and it doesn't end until uh, his own right before his death in 1683. And so the latter portion of his life, as he's thinking about decline in the church, uh, he tries to go to uh, a New Testament book in the Bible that he thinks uh, will help him encourage his nonconformist brethren to persevere uh, amidst crisis and persecution. And few books better speak to that in the New Testament than the book of Hebrews. And so in many ways, you can tell the story of Owen's life through the lens of this epistle you know, kind of what Galatians was to Luther and, you know, Psalms was to Calvin, Uh, the book of Hebrews is to uh, Owen. And so as he's uh, facing this defeat, as he's needing to persevere, as he's needing to encourage the faithful, uh, the book of Hebrews is a great platform for him to do that.
1: You, you, You show us in the book that Owen engages with a lot of existing scholarship on Hebrews as he prepares his commentary. Obviously, he writes a very long commentary, two million words, longer than anything else that had been published on the book up to that point. What, what does he add to the exegetical tradition that wasn't there before?
0: What's fascinating is as he's assessing uh, various uh, commentators, uh, he, he's frustrated that uh, if he wants to uh, get somebody's devotional thoughts on... Uh, Hebrews, he's got to go to one commentary. If he wants to uh, deal with textual issues, he's got to go to another commentary. If he wants to think through theological interpretations, he has to pick up another commentary. And so what he tries to do is bring all of that together. And so the commentary is structured where he begins by thinking about key biblical theological topics that help interpret the text. And then when you get to the commentary proper, uh, he begins with textual analysis. Then he goes through basic biblical exposition. And then he teases out uh, theological commentary. And then he concludes with basic application. This is fairly typical Puritan fare. But he really was disappointed that he couldn't go to a commentary where all of those things were done in one place. To the great irony is uh, Owen writes this two million word commentary, but he actually thinks in doing so he's making a more accessible book. So scholars could go to the textual side if they were interested in criticism. Uh, scholars and theologians could go to uh, the portion of the commentary where we reflecting on. Uh, theological debates that were uh, hot-button issues in the day, and then kind of parishioners and pastors could go straight to his observations if they were interested in uh, pastoral application. And so he he divides this commentary up in several ways, and and in doing so, he thinks he's doing something that other people haven't really done before.
1: We actually have a copy of uh, one of the folios of this commentary in our special collections unit here in Queen's University, Belfast, and it's fascinating to see how the 17th century owner, who was a woman, engaged with the text, a very learned and dense text, but she's using it for devotional application. Fascinating just to see how that works. John, in some ways, the epistle to the Hebrews is, is a book about history, isn't it? It's a book that contrasts the old and the new or the past and the present, and in, in your book, John Owen and Hebrews, The Foundation of Biblical Interpretation, you show how Owen uses this book to construct what we might describe as a redemptive historical narrative or as as a, 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 a periodization, perhaps, of redemptive history. Could you just remind us how he does that? What are the periods in redemptive history that Owen can identify?
0: Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that um, when you look at the commentary, uh, it, it not only it is a window on his life, but it's a window on the issues of 17th century Puritan exegesis, and so it, it's a product of his day. And Owen is is keenly interested in uh, kind of the outcropping of hermeneutical manuals that are developing in the 17th century especially as it relates to a topic such as covenant theology. Uh, Over the uh, previous, say, 150 years or so, scholars in the Reformation and post-Reformation were thinking about how you would categorize different aspects of uh, Scripture in the Old and New Testament. And it was fairly standard fare to have people talk about, say, the covenant of works to describe the period uh, before the fall of Adam and Eve in the early chapters of Genesis and then scholars would talk about the kind of the covenant of grace to talk about the period of time from say Genesis uh, 3 all the way to Revelation 22 and then within that various historic administrations to people like Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and Christ. But what Owen began to see is that when most people were talking about covenant, they were doing so topically. Well, what he wanted to do is talk about covenant historically and begin to, to trace the nuances of the various biblical historical administrations uh, during these different kind of epics, or we might even call dispensations. And so Owen is very careful to, to look at kind of the redemptive historical development of covenant as it ultimately will culminate in Christ. And So Owen's drawing from this scholarship, and you begin to see how that scholarship is informing uh, his commentary, where he pays careful attention to these various epics in redemptive history.
1: Now, does Owen see continuity or discontinuity between these epochs?
0: Right. So at the end of the day, he's going to say, if he's talking kind of programmatically, uh, topically, theologically, uh, he's going to say there is fundamental continuity from Genesis three to Revelation 22. And he'll say that the biggest divide in the Bible isn't between, say, Malachi and Matthew, the Old and New Testament. But the biggest divide in the Bible is from Genesis two and Genesis three. In Genesis 2, you're before the fall, and Adam relates directly to God in in terms of this covenant of works. And then afterwards, there's all grace. And so fundamentally, there's basic continuity, and, and Owen's quite happy with that. But what's very, very interesting, as Owen begins to look at the exegesis of the text, as he begins to look at these various administrations, He is very quick to highlight discontinuities between these uh, particular historic administrations, all the while wanting to emphasize the fundamental continuity of the covenant of grace.
1: That's fascinating, John. So as Owen reads the Old Testament, and as he sees one epoch giving way to another, or one dispensation giving way to another, not quite sure the best terminology to use there. How does he see one epoch build upon the last?
0: So it's organic for him. Uh, the, the basic promise that governs all other promises in the Old Testament is found in Genesis 315, where God promises to uh, Adam and Eve to bring a deliverer through her seed who will overcome uh, the evil one and, and provide deliverance and redemption for the people of God. That's the fundamental promise. And and Owen is going to say uh, that each subsequent uh, covenant or epic it is going to expand upon that promise until it finds its fulfillment in the Messiah. And so that promise fulfillment paradigm governs his basic reading uh, of the Old and New Testament, as well as these particular uh, epics.
1: You have a chapter in the book, John that you give the title, The Problem of the Old Testament. Why did you use the word problem? What are you gesturing towards there?
0: So Owen is uh, addressing uh, perhaps uh, uh, Jewish readers. uh, During this time, there's something of an influx uh, of Jews to uh, England uh, Owen is also the beneficiary of a renaissance and humanistic education where he's rediscovering rabbinic literature. And there's also heightened eschatological expectation that you know, they're living in these end times and they're expecting a kind of conversion of the Jews to Christ. And so Owen is very, very concerned about showing this Jewish audience how uh, the Hebrew scriptures actually point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet, Owen, as a good uh, Reformed theologian, is committed to a literal interpretation of the text. And so the question emerges, well, if you're committed to a literal interpretation of the text, uh, how does the Old Testament relate literally to the person and work of Christ? And so Owen is going to admit that many Jews uh, agree upon the, the words themselves of the Old Testament. But the disagreement is how the Old Testament actually relates to the person of Christ. And so the problem is actually for someone like Owen uh, to show that you can uh, commit yourself to a literal reading of the text as well as be faithful to the Old Testament. And then when you read the Old Testament through that lens, it actually leads you to the personal work of Christ. So he's trying to treat all the Bible as Christian scripture. And yet he's actually trying to interact with uh, a Jewish audience, uh, much the same way that someone like Justin Martyr would have done uh, during the early church, where he tries to prove from kind of the prophetic literature of the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. But it's a great problem for someone like Owen to do this while kind of maintaining uh, this insistence on a literal reading of Scripture. And he's going to push back on even someone like Calvin, uh, who had perhaps uh, an overly literalistic view of the Old Testament, and was very reticent to apply the Old Testament to Christ. Uh, Owen is going to want to be more free in, in his application and getting to Christ, and yet he's still kind of committed to this literal interpretation. So that chapter tries to kind of develop some of the tension between those
1: two things. It's interesting you use the word tension, John, because in those uh, introductory essays uh, that Owen has in the first volume of his commentary in Hebrews, he's got a very interesting couple of sections where he talks about the promises of the land uh, Mm -hmm. that that, that were given to, to Abraham and to his descendants. And he argues there, doesn't he, that that Israel will not, or that the Jewish population will not only be converted to Puritan Christianity, but that they'll also be restored to their own land in a physical, literal way. And yet at the same time, he's also wanting to show how the promises that are given to Israel relate to the church specifically uh, and also find their fulfillment in Christ. You have a, a chapter in the book, John, that describes the oneness of the church. How does Owen think through this issue of the relationship between the church and Israel?
0: That's a, it's a great question. And so this chapter on the oneness of church follows uh, my chapter on the problem of the Old Testament. And, and here, uh, Owen does rely on his covenant theology, and in particular, his formulation of the Abrahamic covenant. I actually think this is one of the most important essays that Owen writes that serve as an introduction to his commentary. It's one of his shortest uh, and it's actually an essay that has um, subsequent to Owen had some impact on the shape of covenant theology. Uh, So you'll have someone like the 19th century uh, Scottish uh, theologian Patrick Fairbairn uh, rely on Owen in his own kind of development of covenant theology. And so when people go to the commentary, they they need to understand that those essays are an introduction to the commentary. And then Owen's commentary is kind of an introduction onto his own life. And so this uh, essay on the oneness of the church relating to the Abrahamic covenant is really one of the the most pivotal sections of his commentary. And so for Owen, he basically says that uh, the promise to Abraham ultimately is not a matter of flesh, it's a matter of faith. Uh, He criticizes the Jewish people for basically saying that they are assuming that the promises to Abraham really are only for ethnic Israel. And he leans heavily on places like Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 where he shows no, the priority of the Abrahamic covenant is not a matter of flesh but it's a matter of faith, so that all those who share in Abraham's faith are part of this lineage. And so you have the one people of God in both the Old and New Testament. So here his uh, covenant theology is very much kind of shaping his ecclesiology.
1: So he's not arguing that the church is replacing Israel or supplanting Israel, is he?
0: Uh, no, not at all. Uh, again, uh, going back to the earlier argument, for him, uh, the biggest divide in in the landscape of redemptive history is between Genesis two and three, not between the Old and the New Testament. And so you, you've got one church because you have one promise, and that one promise is anchored in one Messiah. So all who trust in that Messiah are united in one church. So if you're united to Christ, you're united to one another, whether you're a Gentile or from ethnic Israel.
1: And that that issue of one promise is, I suppose, the issue that underlies one of your concluding discussions in the book, which considers the status of the covenant with Moses and how that covenant relates to the broader redemptive historical Um, development uh, of the Old and New Testaments. Owen's scholarship has has worried about the status of the Mosaic Covenant in terms of Owen's thought, hasn't it? Could you tell us how different scholars have approached the question of Owen's interpretation of Sinai and how they've thought that might fit into his narrative of biblical redemptive history?
0: Well, this was one of the most hotly contested debates in the 17th century. And so this is a question that has long plagued reform scholars. Uh, And and it's basically thinking about how you place the covenant to Moses in the landscape of redemptive history. Uh, Some have seen the covenant with Moses as part of the covenant of works Others have seen it as part of the covenant of grace. Others want to say it's a mixture of the two. And yet Owen wants to do something slightly different from from all of those uh, answers. And so scholars have just struggled to, to know exactly what Owen is saying. And the place of contention is in an excursus in Owen's commentary on Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 where Owen gives an extended discussion about the placement of the uh, Mosaic Covenant and, and part of it for Owen is actually how we define the word covenant as it relates to Moses and the short of it is Owen is actually unhappy with using the the word covenant as it relates to Moses because when he looks at what happens at Sinai He sees a testament basically being uh, inaugurated that provides the the testamentary kind of foundation or secures uh, the blessings of the promise that were given to Abraham, which is a covenant. So Owen just tries to nuance what he means by covenant, and he doesn't see what God does with, with Moses as ultimately a promise and therefore a covenant. He sees it as a testament that is a uh, a, a, an arrangement given by God to his people that's procured upon the death of a sacrifice and for Owen, that's ultimately going to be the sacrifice of Christ. And so the Mosaic Testament provides the foundation for the promise of the covenant of grace. And so he tries to give an exegetical answer where he distances himself from other Reformed colleagues of his.
1: This is a very important point that you make in this section, isn't it? Because much of the scholarship in Owen reads Owen as somehow uh, symbolic or representative of a broader Reformed tradition or a Protestant scholastic exegetical tradition. And yet uh, you pick up on Owen's claim that the majority of Reformed writers in this topic have got it wrong. And uh, you you argue that, that Owen's solution uh, to the problem of reading the Covenant with Moses is a Lutheran solution.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and so Owen has this tendency to use a good argument wherever he finds it. And as long as it suits his purposes, he, he's quite happy to use what might seem to be unpredictable Uh, sources or even unorthodox sources. Uh, So as a good Reformed theologian, he's quite happy to borrow from arguments made by Lutheran scholars that look at the Mosaic Mosaic Covenant more in terms of promise and fulfillment, law and gospel, which fit the scheme of Owen very nicely. Uh, He he also, interestingly enough, uh, borrows similar arguments from kind of Amaraldian scholars as well. And so Owen just kind of defies classification. Uh, He's happy with the basic reformed argument. uh, If you're looking at a programmatic structure, covenant of works, covenant of grace. But when you get into the details of the exegesis of of Hebrews eight, he's actually much more sympathetic with, uh, you know, Lutheran scholarship and even Amaraldian scholarship than he is with, with the Reform scholarship on Hebrews 8. And so it was a great kind of surprise uh, for me when I was working through Owen is just to basically see his willingness to follow uh, the text wherever it leads, even if that puts him in a minority position uh, with uh, the majority of Reform scholars of his day.
1: Well John, you've written this magnificent book, John Owen and Hebrews, the Foundation of Biblical Interpretation, just published by T T Clark. Uh, it makes a, a really convincing argument that we need to think about Owen not merely as a dogmatician, but fundamentally as an exegete, as a reader of Scripture, as a biblical interpreter. What what kind of impact do you hope that your book will make? Uh,
0: well, as I was working on this book, there, there were several stages for me. Uh, the first, I began looking at uh, the commentary as a unit, and I was trying to ask the question, How does this commentary of Owens cohere as one fundamental work? I know it's a big book. There's two million words. And yet, how do we understand it as a unit? And then moving beyond that, I began asking questions. You know, how does this commentary uh, fit in the world of 17th century exegesis? And then once I was able to settle some of that, I began asking some basic questions. How does this commentary actually serve as a lens through which to interpret Owen, and really came to the conclusion that we cannot interpret either his biography or his theology apart from his commentary on Hebrews. So from the the second half of his life, from 1661 to the end of his life, he's explicitly writing this commentary. But then you can also argue that from the very, very beginning of his life in the 1640s, He has an eye to this commentary and what's been interesting for me kind of now after this work is to kind of go back and look at some of his earlier writings to see how his interests in Hebrews has informed his entire career. And so I hope this work will will challenge both historians and theologians uh, to go back and kind of reevaluate the place of his commentary uh, really throughout his, his life and in the corpus of his writings.
1: Wonderful. Well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we finish, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment?
0: So I'm uh, working on a paper that I'll be giving at hopefully a conference uh, in the fall that actually begins evaluating uh, Owen's early exegesis before uh, he wrote his commentary. And so I'm, I'm starting my kind of reprisal work by looking at his early writings And then I hope that will segue into a follow up book, which will look at uh, kind of Owen's use of scripture as a whole and kind of reevaluate him as an exegete.
1: Uh, Sounds wonderful. Uh, In the meantime, thanks for writing this book, John Owen and Hebrews, The Foundation of Biblical Interpretation, just published by TNT Clark earlier this year, 2019. And thanks for taking the time to come on to the show and talk about it. Thanks for having me, Crawford.
0: It's been a joy to be with you.
1: And take care. And thanks to everyone else for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.